0: The problem is our workers. And just this morning, they showed up at the plant—not numbers that we had hoped for—but we at least keep the the uh, meatpacking plant open. And what's what's happening is is that they're not catching the virus uh, at the meatpacking plant; it's afterwards. Hey, everybody. Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Podcast. Thanks for being here. It is awfully good to have you back. I've been looking forward to today's podcast for a good long while because today we're going to tackle a, a a situation. What a cheesy word. We're going to tackle a, something that's going on right now that really has me motivated uh, in, in ways that almost disgust me. And so I thought, who can I talk to about this that would actually provide the level of expertise that really has the understanding to look in and, and tap this and, and make some decisions? And that's where I hooked up with a name a lot of you are going to know, Dr. David Michaels. And we're going to talk about him. In fact, I'll, I'll give him an introduction, but let's check in a little bit and see how you're doing. It's been another week. And as time flies by, and it is just zooming by, it's been a week filled with um, uh, just a lot of, of uncertainty because we're in an uncertain time. And the outcomes of what we do either have immediate feedback or no feedback at all, and there's kind of no in-between. That's true of a lot of stuff I'm seeing right now. There's just, there's just not a lot of in-between. But it's interesting you guys are out there making decisions quickly based upon the best data you have which is always going to be incomplete and you're having to be so agile and so adaptive because the decision you make today may in fact turn around tomorrow and especially as you guys are bouncing forward into operations now not to say a lot of you weren't in operations all along but you you know what I mean it's it, we're at a changing time now and the problems we're dealing with now are really different than the problems we were even dealing with two weeks ago. And this idea of how to assure the organization and maybe more importantly, the people in the organization that they're going to re-enter an environment that is safe is really, really a difficult problem. And it's made more difficult by the fact that there's a tremendous amount of pressure to get back to normal. Let's get back to normal you know and and everybody wants to get back to to normal we want the economy to function and and we want to not be afraid the issue is is that tension to get back to normal is butting up against the tension to actually make prudent decisions around really how we can create reliable and resilient environments and how we can keep people well healthy safe and you're there i mean i'm not telling you anything you you're you're living this story so you know exactly what's going on. And that is a really important part of today's conversation. I started again with the, uh, Pat Roberts quote, the Senator from the great state of Kansas of which I'm from the great state of Kansas. I just feel like I need to put that in and how really what we've talked about for the last 25 years is almost immediately disarmed by robert's notion that the problem is the worker he starts his 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 statement with the problem is the worker and i can promise you a lot i don't know very much i really don't but i know the problem is not the worker it's a virus and whether you are politically aligned one direction or another direction doesn't really matter it's a virus and the fact that it's a virus means we're really into kind of industrial hygiene country and not political country. And yet, it's all kind of coming together. And Dr. Michael says something really interesting. He says, safety is no longer a technical function. It's also a cultural function. And I think that summarizes quite nicely the transition that we're not necessarily making. I think we knew that but the transition that the rest of our world is having to make. And now we play this important role. We're at the table with the big boys and girls. The problem is, is that we have no more firm answers than anyone else does. And that's the discussion. And I know a lot of my friends have done Herculean things to create environments where we're really managing distance, time, and shielding. Which we know those are the three things we can manage. I mean, if you think about it, that's what we manage. That's really an important part of it. And that's where we get into the conversation I had with um, David Michaels. So I've known David Michaels because our world has, uh, has combined for many years. But if you don't know him... Um, Dr. Michaels is an epidemiologist and a professor in the Department of Environment and Occupational Health at the Milken Institute of Public Health, sorry, the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University in D.C. But for our conversation, I wanted to tap into this part of his, his experience. From 2009 to 2017, he was Assistant Secretary of Labor and he was at OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health. Uh, he worked under the Obama administration and was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. Um, he's He's been there a while. He was the 12th assistant secretary and really the longest serving OSHA secretary in the history of OSHA. And so if I want to tap into that kind of expertise, that's who I wanted to tap into. And he was more than pleased to be on the – in fact, when I asked him to be on the podcast, he said, I would love to be on the podcast because I listen to it all the time. And I thought, whoa, hello, welcome aboard. And that's what happened. So let's um, let's listen carefully to the conversation that Dr. Michaels and I had really about, specifically, we're going to talk about the meatpacking industry, kind of, but what we're really talking about is each other, all of us. And I think you'll find this really valuable. Do not hesitate to pass this forward. I think this will buy you not only some space, but also some uh, immediate credibility. So, without any further ado, here's our conversation. Hey, Dr. Michaels, thanks for being on the podcast. It's a it's a special treat to get to talk to you, and thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. I've seen you everywhere. I've seen you on TV. I've seen you. Uh, I've read you. You've got a book out, a, a new book out. You've got you're you're it's uh you're getting a lot of press right now. What are you thinking? what's going on? What, what's in your mind as you go on this journey and talk about it with people all over the
1: world it, it, it's It's a, a fascinating period. It's a disheartening one. It's a challenging one. Uh, you know it, first, it's easy for me to speak. you know i'm I'm at home with my family in a beautiful location and uh, haven't really left the neighborhood in two months. And I know that out there there are uh what we're calling essential workers who are for the most part low low-paid uh black and brown workers who are you know keeping the economy going, make sure that you know the food that I see on my table every day is getting there. And of course, there are healthcare workers of all all uh skills and wages and, and titles who are working out there. And the um the toll is high. I mean, I just saw the latest numbers from CDC. Uh, are somewhere north of 43,000 healthcare workers have been infected, and that doesn't include New York State, for example. And so when I look at this from the, you know, the comfort of my own home, looking at really the the tremendous toll, this tragedy that's going on out there, uh, and imagining what workers are are facing in many work sites where I've visited. You know, I've been in in uh, meat plants and and knowing what that work is like. Um, I think, you know, this, first, this is a remarkable situation. It's, it's unlike anything that any of us who are alive today have, have ever had to deal with uh, from a worker safety point of view. It is the, the worker safety crisis of, of generations. And what's so disheartening is that, you know, the agency I ran, OSHA, uh, is really not in the forefront of helping address these issues in the workplace, helping workers, helping employers. It's it's a un, it's unfortunate.
0: So this question might be a bit naive. I mean, because I'm with you every step of this way. What's going on? Why? How? How? How can this be happening in the United States?
1: Uh, I think this really has to do with the Trump. A couple of things. I think the Trump administration really has no um, care for uh, working people. I mean, it's really it is remarkable. the The focus from the White House is the stock market and trying to reopen the economy, not recognizing that right now, even with the economy so-called closed, uh, there are thousands of workers out there who are being exposed on a daily basis to this this deadly virus. Uh, OSHA has no, it does not have a a confirmed Senate confirmed assistant secretary, and so it that that has an impact. the um, The political appointees at OSHA don't have a strong technical background. I think. Um, you know, I don't want to criticize them on a personal level. I mean, I think um, I'm sure they care about workers as well, but the, uh, the agency really has been sidelined, and there's there there's no one with the the strength to go and say we need to be involved in this. And, and Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia, who should know better, is um, he's in hiding. It's fascinating to me that that um, when I was watching all those afternoon press briefings. Uh, with the president, who would bring in various cabinet ministers, uh, cabinet secretaries. There are a lot of people I had never seen before, uh, but only once did I see Secretary of Labor Scalia, who ought to be there, saying, "You know, workers need to be protected. This is what we have to do," and sort laying things out for America. Uh, but he hasn't been there, and so the message isn't getting out that, you know, this is an absolute requirement, and. And certainly the, the employers who are out there now in the meatpacking industry, they know what they should have done and they didn't do at the beginning. But the challenge looking forward is right now we need to reopen the economy. Everybody understands that. And we're talking about more than just you know, restaurants and you know, tattoo parlors and cafes. I mean, we've got to reopen manufacturing. The big three automakers have just reopened this week. They have put tremendous amount of time and resources into thinking about how to do that right. The materials they put together are really terrific. I know that they've been involved with the United Auto Workers because they recognize that preventing exposure in workplaces has to be intensely collaborative. That it can't come down from above. It can't be the employer saying, this is what we're gonna do when everybody's gonna follow us. Because look, if, if a worker is feeling, feeling sick and is symptomatic, but If you're offering a $500 bonus to come in every day for a month, and let's say you're at day 26, and that worker starts having a cough or doesn't uh, temperature, if 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 they could get to work, they're going to get to work. And so you need to you need to have a a system where everybody's sort of you know reading from the same hymnal, Um, and no one from the administration is talking about that. That's the message that has to get out there. Of course, I've been uh, advocating since January that OSHA issue an emergency standard. At first, it was clear to me that uh, that was necessary for the healthcare industry, that employers need to know that workers must be protected. I have no question the big hospitals in the country got that. And they were scrambling to get PPE, and you know everybody's followed this very carefully. We, there's been endless newspaper articles and TV shows about the, the challenges facing uh, everybody from physicians to laundry workers in in hospitals. But it, that message still hasn't gotten out to the nursing homes, and the workers, the exposures in the nursing homes, and the, the deaths in the nursing homes are, are to say that they're high is an understatement. We've had. You know, thousands of people die who are in nursing homes and, and many thousands of workers who have been infected. If it, OSHA had an emergency standard out from the beginning, those nursing homes would, would certainly have made accommodations to meet that standard. It may not have all have made it. And you know, if if you try to, to meet a standard and you can't, but you've done it well, OSHA never cites you. And we had that issue with, um, with fire-resistant clothing, where we told uh, the folks who are operating upstream oil and gas operations, the um, you know, drilling sites, where there was real risk of fire and explosion and we had really terrible uh, tragedies that occurred. We said, look, you've gotta give everyone fireproof clothing, fire resistant clothing. And um, it was hard to get it first. And we, certainly, we said, look, if you've made, done your job and tried to, tried to get it, you're fine, but you have, you have to try to get it. <laughs> um, and that would be true in, in the hospitals and nursing homes as well. Subsequently, as this epidemic spread to other workplaces and, and not just meatpacking plants, but some of the big box stores and, and farms where there, there are certain their farms where dozens and dozens of workers have been infected. It became very clear that we need a very straightforward OSHA standard across the board to tell employers to do the right thing. Because, look, we, we know many employers will try to do everything they can and they, they get that. But there are a lot who will say, well, if I don't really have to do it, I won't. Anyway, I've I've been, uh, you know, I can get off my high horse for a minute, But but when I see this and see that OSHA hasn't issued an emergency standard, I say, what is going on in the minds of of the White House or or the Secretary of Labor that they think that OSHA's current standards, which are really very weak and almost meaningless in this case, and the general duty clause are enough to, to move every employer in the country to do the right thing. I wonder what planet are they on?
0: That's a really interesting, as sad as it sounds, kind of summary of, of where we are and what's happening, and it's it's put it's put us the the world of safety, practicing safety professionals, people who do work on resilience and reliability, in a really interesting position because there's always been kind of an interesting relationship, uh, for lack of a better word, between the regulator and the employer. There's no question about it, but this this idea that suddenly there there's no Expectation. There's no standard by which this work could be done. There's nothing to draw to. There's nothing to, to stand on as a firm regulatory foundation. That's that's been. um Well, it's it's a crisis of of operational conscience in a way, and it's 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 horrific to watch. I mean, it's it's just been really interesting. Other industries are stepping up. The employers are stepping up. They're they're into a position where they're they're filling in the void and that ethical connection that the employer has with the worker. You can see it I mean there are there are stories of great success with amazing people doing amazing things, but I look at this and I wonder ultimately, this is really a symptom of thinking that's different do you do you think what they're what they're thinking at least at the level of the leadership right now, is that the problem is the person?
1: you know I don't think so. I think what's going on is not so much the worker is the problem, but I what I've seen coming out of some very high level mouths at HHS, for example, is saying that, you know, in the, the exposures in these meatpacking plants are really what's going on at home or in the community, which, of course, is, you know, is ludicrous when you look at the numbers. Um you know, part of it, it's it's sort of a naivete about what goes on at work. Some of it's racism because, you know, among the meatpackers, a large percentage of them are immigrants. They're people of color. And this idea that that maybe they live in squalor or something like that, though, they they don't. Um, But the the governor of South Dakota said that, that it's really not the exposures in in the plants. It's what's going on at home.
0: Well, so let me push you a little on that, um, because I actually think what you just described is a really elaborate, um, pretty exotic way to blame the worker. Um, That's the worker's problem. Yeah. So I teased it earlier this week, and then I played it again. At the beginning of the podcast, I mean, you won't be able to hear it because it hasn't happened yet. But um, uh, Pat Roberts, the senator from Kansas, he said the worker is the problem. Uh, To me, when I hear him say that these people are dirty, they don't care enough, they live communally, they're sort of forgetting the, the fact that it's a virus. And a virus is a virus. And it's a
1: virus. Yeah, that that there's no question. That's part of what underlies it. And what's interesting about this also is the short-sightedness of the officials who do that, because it's certainly in their interest, it's everybody's interest, to to stem this pandemic. But if you look at how disease spreads, it doesn't stop at the the door of the of the workplace, It doesn't stop at the door of the home. I mean, every, once you know people bring their bring infections home and and people at home, bring it to the streets and to the parks and everybody gets exposed. Um, And so unless you you figure out what's really going on and saying, we're going to, we are going to stop exposures. And that means we're going to have to go into workplaces and stop exposures. (laughs) You know, we're going to, this epidemic is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger.
0: So what do we do? I mean, this is, um, it's got us all in a position, at least in our world on the safety and health world where we're, the traditional underpinnings of how we would support this decision and make these efforts has been removed. That's right. So now we're in the position where we're, we're working diligently for our organization while sort of providing our own ground cover on weak regulations, uh, shoulds instead of shalls. How do we move forward from this? It seems like it's, it's a challenge that, that we haven't had in a while.
1: Look, I think we know how to do it right. I think you know, it's we're not going to we're not going to get it perfectly, but there are some very straightforward recommendations out there. And actually, OSHA's original recommendations I thought were really good. Um, the ones that came out, for example, on meatpacking, that you know we understand that there are some very straightforward, almost non-technical uh, interventions that need to take place. You know, physical distance makes a big difference, and PPE. The correct PPE, which safety professionals get, and sanitation. There are more complex issues which safety professionals can play an important role in um, thinking about the ventilation system in workplaces, and that's not something that you know just anyone can walk in off the street and say, "Let's take a look at this." But there's a lot of evidence that if you get more airflow, you're going to be better off. Um, I think that there's a many employers would like to rely on safety professionals because they they don't really know. They don't have the confidence in themselves and they're correct they could they could use some outside help um, the as I was saying the the early recommendations from OSHA I thought were really good at this point. I think OSHA's almost using a cookie cutter and they're they're just changing the title and just knocking out you know here's some new recommendations for pharmacies here's some new recommendations for retail um without necessarily thinking that that much more about them but they're they're still useful but safety professionals certainly can step in, step into the void here and be really helpful. But I, the message I would love to give safety professionals is to say, this is more than just a technical, said technical questions. It's this cultural question. That if if an employer hires, you've got to say to the employer, look, we're going to make these changes, but we're going to have to make sure that they're working, and that's going to involve getting the workers engaged in this, that they have to buy in, they have to see it's for them too. Um, Let's think about how we're going to do that. What are we going to do when we have a positive test? If if we're testing first, first, and we have a, an accurate test, does it have good specificity and sense Well, and specific, importantly, sensitivity. Um, we're going to be doing uh, temperature monitoring. What are we going to do with a, um, you know, someone who has an elevated temperature or an elevated uh, test result that's positive? Do we have mechanisms for isolation immediately? What sort of policies we're going to have for picking up people's salary, and how are we going to communicate all that to get everybody to agree to do it together? That that's, you know, that you got to do that at the same time you're figuring out how do you place people so they're not right next to each other, and that's the that's the challenge. But I think the safety safety professionals get that they they rarely work in the vac, in the vacuum, so there I think this is this should be a, a very good time for the safety profession to be, you know. Um, at the center of this response and to be really helpful.
0: Listen, nice to hear you say that. It's true. It's true. And it's been true. I mean, safety professionals are, are, have done that historically. They're doing it now. They're doing it. They're doing all those things now, right now, as we're doing it. And it, it's it, the challenge is, is how do we keep the motivation up? How do we keep the ethical connections in there? How do we work in spite of a lack of regulation? That's That's really the question. And I guess maybe what I'm dying to know is what's the future look like? Well, what, what, what do you think will happen with all this? What do you predict? And that's a risky thing to ask you to do. But when you look ahead, how are you seeing the world?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I can look at it from a sort of uh, pessimistic or optimistic point of view. I tend to be an optimist, but the pessimistic first, which is I already have heard reports of people saying, I can't take this anymore. I'm leaving people who, uh saying, look, I'm going to go out and inspect at this store where they had, you know, 60 cases of of COVID-19 or, you know, in the, in this warehouse, or, and then they're told, no, you can't do that. We're just going to do a, a, a phone call there. Um, and I know that a lot of dedicated people just have said, are you, are you kidding? I'm, I'm going to look for another job. And I think it's demoralizing and we're going to lose some very good people. Um, the optimistic side is that if it were clear before it, before this epidemic, it was very clear to many of us that OSHA was under-resourced and they didn't have the tools they really needed to be effective. That couldn't be more clear now. And so I would think that after this is over, that there'll be an opportunity to, to uh, reimagine what OSHA looks like. You know, I, I actually just wrote a piece on this before the epidemic. It's um, in this month's issue of the American Journal of Public Health. It's um, not behind a paywall. We asked them to uh, make it free. So you could go to the American Journal of Public Health website and download it. It's really, it's in, you know, OSHA will turn 50 years old. The OSHA law was passed in December 1979, oh, excuse me, 1969. So it'll be 50 years old this December. And OSHA started you know, in April, next April will be OSHA's 50th anniversary of opening its door. So I, I wrote a piece along with Jordan Barab, who was the deputy assistant secretary when I was at OSHA, um, about some of the shortcomings of OSHA, its successes and failures, and what we need to do to make it more effective in the future. We've learned a great deal since then because of this epidemic, but I think from the, um, the point of view of, of lessons learned, this tells us a lot about, you know, if you have a, a problem where you have thousands of workplaces affected, OSHA inspections will only have a limited effect. OSHA doesn't have enough people to follow up on the the literally thousands of complaints it's gotten, or the thousands of whistleblower uh, report whistleblower retaliation reports. I mean, it, it's over it's overwhelming. Now that's not to say OSHA shouldn't be addressing them now and thinking creatively how to do that, but it also says, how are we going to reimagine? how are we going to rethink what OSHA should be once we uh, put this behind us?
0: Well, I understand the pessimistic view and probably need to hear it, but I really appreciate the optimistic view. That, that I, I do think we can I, – I think we have to rise to the – I don't think there's a choice here. We have to rise to the occasion. You've been on everything. You're a really good person to talk to. I mean pretty much now that you've been on this podcast, it's everything. You can check them all off. What aren't – People asking you that we should be asking you what What are you thinking about? What are you concerned about? What's not in our conversation that should be in our conversation? Because you're the one to ask.
1: Oh well, (laughs) the list is long, but but certainly one area that I've been very disappointed um, in terms of the moment is is focusing on uh, the importance of hearing from workers, not just involving them in you know, making plans, but this idea that uh, we need to encourage workers to raise concerns, not retaliate against them. You know, the OSHA law is very clear. Uh, it says that you can't retaliate against a worker if they've raised a safety concern with their employer or with OSHA or with Congress, for example. But uh, the way the law is enforced is very, is unfortunate, it's weak. The worker has to file within 30 days. It's very difficult, OSHA has to go to court. Um, it's not a strong anti-retaliation provision and needs to be changed by Congress. Since then, OSHA has become the primary investigative agency for the federal government to when there are allegations of retaliation against whistleblowers other than of federal employees. So if you're an accountant and you see that uh, you're the vice president of the company you work for, who's um, in a publicly held company is cooking the books. Under Sarbanes-Oxley, if you're retaliated against because you've raised that concern, OSHA does the investigation. OSHA does investigations under 22 statutes. And those investigations are to protect people who raise concerns to protect themselves or other workers or the health and safety and the welfare of the public. I've heard almost no discussion from the administration or from OSHA saying, look, We've got a situation here where people are being retaliated against for pointing out problems. We have, I've seen reports of people being fired early in this epidemic for bringing in their own masks to wear at work. And then a few weeks later, CDC says everybody should bring in their own masks and and wear them at work. Um, But again, we've got to think about a new way to, to protect these workers. If you go on the OSHA website, there have been thousands of reports of workers being retaliated against OSHA hasn't said how they're going to address that. that It's going to take years and years in the current system before they get to all those. So I think the discussion in the public I'd love to see is um, how do we make sure employers know that it's against the law to retaliate against workers for raising concerns, and that uh, we know it's uncomfortable when they raise concerns, but you got to take those concerns and address them rather than retaliate against workers for, for raising them
0: create some psychological safety.
1: Yeah, that's the idea. You know, we actually put out uh, one of the things that I did with our whistleblower program is it was really sort of a backwater before we got there. Um, We were able to put together a a national advisory committee with representatives of of employers, labor and the public. And I said to them, look, um, we have a really good message around safety. It's not simply like don't let workers get hurt, but build a safety program. It's good for the company, it's good for everybody. You know, you can manage with health and safety and it will help you as, a, as an operation. But the message around whistleblowers was always, don't do that, you know, it's bad. And that, there should be a positive message and a program. And so I asked our advisory committee to come up with that sort of program. And to everybody's surprise, unanimously they came up with one that was you know, totally supported by the, both the employers and the labor people. And out of that, we came a very good OSHA publication saying, here here are some recommended practices to how to set up a program to gather information and to make sure people are safe da- offering that and not being retaliated against. I'd like to see that really promoted um, by this administration. to So employers recognize that this is, you know, they've got to work with their workers and it will help everybody. To, as you know, as we try to deal with this really challenging situation.
0: Thanks for your time. I know you're busy. I mean, you're on everything, so I know you're busy. Thanks for making some time to talk to us because it's good. We, we're glad to have you as a part of the podcast.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I, and I enjoy listening to your, your podcast, so it's great to, to all be getting out there.
0: Man, that was a fun podcast. It was... Um, you know it's harder to coordinate, but but uh, once we got it coordinated, it was fun, and it was really interesting to hear Doctor Michael's David's point of view that from the regulator. It was really interesting when I asked him about Path Forward. It was a it was a real snapshot into what's going on at that level, and I think that's helpful to us for everything. To me, the idea that we're moving from a really a set of technical questions to more of a set of cultural questions, or and. A set of cultural questions is is powerful stuff. This this man, Doctor David Michaels, was the OSHA administrator for one fifth of its history, the longest running administrator. Um, he brings a really interesting, a super interesting vantage point to where we are right now, and that's the podcast. That is today. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to share this. This one's a good one to share. Uh, Learn something new every single day. I know you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. That seems more and more and more important. And for goodness sakes, be safe.